on the book of Obadiah. Now the first trick in uh, Obadiah is finding it. It's page 933 in our Cathedral Bibles and 934, the shortest book in the Old Testament. Uh, and it's the book where you never have to give a chapter number, just a verse number will do, although it's a little disorienting when you just say Obadiah 10 and you think which verse. Okay, having found Obadiah, the next trick is that of judging by sight. For we tend to judge the present victory by sight. Uh, whose soldiers occupy the streets? Whose flag is flying from the government house or from parliament house? Whose language is being spoken as the official language? That's, that's the problem of, uh, of, uh, of, of victory. That's the sign of victory. Uh, the, after the Second World War, if Japanese had been spoken on George, George Street or German had been spoken here, well, you know who would have won. But in fact, English is more common in Japan than Japan is in Australia and English is more common in Germany and English has conquered the world because after the Second World War, the Allies conquered the world. So who won the war? Well, it can be seen. It's obvious by all kinds of signs. And that is the sign that you see of power and of wealth and of wisdom, which tend to tell us who the winners in life are and who the losers in life are. Who are the people we admire, envy and wish to emulate? And who are the people we pity or we try to avoid? Uh, the size of their buildings, the size of their cars, their boats, their jewellery. Uh, there was a phrase that came out, well, I don't know when it was, in the 70s or 80s, calling people the heavies. It's a good word because it actually goes back to a Hebrew concept too. The word glory, kavod, meant heavy. Because people of great glory, great power, great magnificence tend to be, well, like Americans, overweight. And tend to be people who wear big jewellery and flunky... Fl and, and there is a sense of which... They are the heavy, they drive the big cars and they have big houses and they have big boats and they have... Now, of course, we are never so shallow or superficial as to judge this way, but conspicuous consumption is the way the world judges and that has got to do with sight. A successful organisation has large buildings, great promotional advertising with beautiful young people actively involved and famous people advocating their cause. It's the sales method of the mosque, of the university, of the government, of the Mormons, of the Scientologists. Uh, it's the naming rights of the city buildings around about us. And some churches have also fallen prey to it as well, very sadly. Jerusalem was defeated by Babylon in the 6th century BC. Babylon was the great, wealthy, powerful cities, one of the wonders of the ancient world were the hanging gardens of Babylon. Jerusalem was defeated, destroyed, plundered, razed to the ground. It's a funny use of the word razed, isn't it? I always think razed means you get, you get up, but it's a different word. Razed to the ground. That, there was nothing left. It was in ruins. And in this defeat, Babylon had many friends. Judah and Jerusalem had no friends. And one of Babylon's friends was the small state of Edom. 
For Edom joined in the conquest of Jerusalem. Look to me to verse 11. On that day, that, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But the vision of Obadiah is not about human sight. He has a vision, in fact that's how the whole thing starts. Verse 1, the vision of Obadiah, but it's quite different to the vision that humans see. For Obadiah's vision is the vision of God. And Obadiah sees Edom and its sin and its judgment. And so pick up the second half of verse 1, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your hearts has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks, in the lofty dwellings, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. There's the vision of God, which is different to the visions of this world. The vision of God that Obadiah is given to see Edom properly. Now to understand Edom's sin, we need to understand who Edom was. It was a nation directly south of the Dead Sea and therefore south of Palestine, stretching from the Dead Sea down to the Gulf of Aqaba, down to the, 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 tip, the northern tip of the Red Sea. But of course, that's Jordan, that's uh, today, and, and that's desert country, basically. More importantly than where this nation was is who this nation was. It was the nation that descended from Esau. So you see Esau referred to in verse 6, how Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out, or down in verse 8. Will I not say on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and and understanding men out of Mount Esau? Remember in Hebrew, they frequently use parallels. So you say the one thing two different ways, but it's the same thing you're saying. To destroy the wise men out of Edom is to destroy understanding out of Mount Esau because Edom is Esau. Abraham had one son, Isaac. Isaac had two boys who were twins, the sons Jacob and Esau. The elder of the two was Esau. Jacob, his name is changed to Israel. Esau, his name is changed to Edom. And so you can talk about Jacob and you mean Israel and you might mean the man or you might mean the nation Israel. You can talk about Esau, rarely was he ever called Edom, but his nation is called Edom or Esau. Now remember Esau and his sin. It's back in Genesis 25. It was to sell his birthright to his brother Jacob for a bowl of soup. I understand the Hebrew actually is referring to lentil soup, which as one who doesn't really enjoy lentil soup, I think was a pretty poor show. At least you could have ham and pea or something, but <laughs> lentil was really dreadful. Esau was the firstborn. 
for the heir of the promise of Isaac and Abraham. God had promised Abraham that his, nation, his family would be the family that would rule the world, ultimately. That the salvation of mankind would come through his family. That he was the heir of the promised land. That every nation would be blessed if they blessed him and cursed if they cursed him. All the nations of the world would find their blessing. And this was the, na- the promises given to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Esau because he was the firstborn son. But Esau didn't value the promises of God. And when he was hungry, he sold the promises of God to his usurping, ambitious brother, Jacob. Uh, The very name Jacob, James in Greek, means, I'm sorry if you're a James or a Jacob, because there are lots of lovely names around, like Philip, means lover of horses. James Jacob means usurper, means uh, ambitious person. I don't know how you call your child that, but if you have, well, good. Um, And he was the ambitious one. He was the usurper. He wanted what his older brother had. His older brother didn't value what he had. And so when he was hungry, he sold it for a bowl of lentil soup. It was an inheritance that was not to be realised for 400 years and Esau was hungry that afternoon. It was a matter of, I'm hungry now and what's this promise that my children are going to inherit the world? I don't care about that. I'm hungry now. Genesis 25. The conflict continued for many years after that. So that in years later, when Moses wanted to lead the people into the promised land, travelling through Edom, the Edomites wouldn't let them. They insisted that the people of Israel walked around Edom. They couldn't come through Edom. Even though they were the brother nation, they were cousins. It's it's like New Zealanders. Uh, You know, I mean, when it comes to rugby, we fight furiously. But when it comes to it, kind of any contact with the world well they're our cousins they're our brothers they're our I mean Anzac is a word that we've put together to actually understand how we operate together and we've always been together and have that sense of feeling when Christchurch has a has its earthquake it feels like well it's it's a home country that has had its earthquake it is one of us it is what do we do that we help them now we help people anywhere that have earthquake as in Japan but Somehow Christchurch, it's always like having a one in Perth. Mind you, some New Zealanders feel that we think of them more like part of the one nation rather than the cousins, but they are cousins to us in a way that Canada is and South Africa is because it's part of being part of the British Empire, part of the same histories, part heritage. Well, Esau and Edom were the cousins of Jacob and Israel And yet they wouldn't let them pass through their land, but insisted they go out into the wilderness. You find it in Numbers chapter 20. Now come back to Obadiah, because now we're talking hundreds of years later. You've got Abraham and his son Isaac and Jacob and Esau. And then hundreds of years later, you've got the Edomites refusing Moses' entry through their land. And now hundreds of years later, Babylon has conquered Judah. And here we see Edom's pride. Verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground, though you soar aloft like it, the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars. From there, 
I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Uh, they were rock dwellers, which doesn't sound too attractive. But when you remember the area of Petra is in Edom, you might get some image of what it was about. For in Petra there are these incredible houses built into the lofty rocks in the cliffs. A desert fortification that would seem impossible to overcome or conquer. And so they seem safe and secure. Now, here are some of the famous photos of today of the heritage listed site of Petra in Jordan where you see these incredible buildings right up into the cliffs and into the rocks and there are little people in those pictures that are so little you can't see in comparison with the cliff buildings that they have there. If you look very carefully at that one on the third level there's a, a kind of a, a, a plateau there and there are little people there. That is how huge these are and so seemingly how would you attack a civilization built into the cliffs like that. And so they felt safe, they felt secure. Now I have no idea whether these were the ones in Petra back in Edom. I don't know enough archaeology to know whether I'm picking on the right history. But I'm illustrating the kind of housing, the kind of sense of living in the rocks was an enormous security, a safety that they felt that they had. They also felt safe because they had alliances. Look down to verse 7. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They've prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap. But they had allies. They relied upon their allies. They had treaties with powerful friends. For Edom saw themselves as wise people. They were protected by where they lived and how they set themselves up. And they were protected by having all the right alliances with all the powerful people around about who would look after them in the days of trouble. But it was not for their pride that Edom was to be judged. Uh, pride deceived them, as pride can deceive any of us, can't it? So that you don't see the judgment, you don't see the fall that is coming. But that was not the reason for Edom's judgment. Rather, it was Edom's brotherly violence. So look down verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob... Shame shall come over, cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his, that is Jacob's wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them over the page. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over their disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand in the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of his distress. Edom broke the law of sibling duty and responsibility. For there should be a natural brotherly affection and solidarity. But they lacked it. And they joined in rejecting Israel, Jacob. They rejected God's people. And when you reject God's people, you reject God. Edom acts like the godless and further sold their share in God like their great father, Esau. Uh, brotherly love is a very important part of human responsibility 
and solidarity. In the first half of the 20th century, the founder of uh, the, the, uh, the boys' town in Nebraska, looking after orphans and, and uh, children in difficulty, saw a painting of uh, a boy helping his brother. And he used a phrase that became a motto for boys' town. Uh, it got picked up in the 60s and 70s by a group called the Hollies in England and by Neil Diamond in America and became a great hit in the 70s, if you're of that age, to listen to that kind of music. And the, and the great motto was, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. I won't sing the song for you right now, yeah, only because of my sore leg. Otherwise, I'm sure I could squeak out a chorus or two. But let me read you the first couple of verses of it. The road is long with many a winding turn that leads us to who knows where, who knows when. But I'm strong, strong enough to carry him. He ain't heavy, he's my brother. So on we go. His welfare is of my concern. No burden is he to bear, we'll get there, for I know he would not encumber me. He ain't heavy, he's my brother. It's interesting, the popularity of this song decades later. Interesting how many people turn to this song at times of funerals, of their family deaths, of their deaths of their siblings, seeing in these lyrics the great truth, the fundamental truth, we are born into families. That's, that's how we're born. That is how God has set the world up, that we would be born into families. And families have brothers and sisters. And that brotherly love is fundamental to the way in which we are to live. And this is the great crime of Edom. Theirs was not brotherly love, but the sibling rivalry and hatred of Esau and Jacob of Cain and Abel. So Edom's judgment is pronounced by Obadiah. It didn't look like it at the time, except to Obadiah the prophet, whose vision was not like the world's vision, but whose vision was the vision of God. When the judgment comes, there'll be nothing left of Edom. Thieves usually leave something out of which we can rebuild our shattered lives, but not so Edom. All was to be stolen. We had one house we lived in some time ago which really had the back fence led to a paddock and the rest of it and we got broken into many times and all kinds of things were taken. And indeed, the electronics of our household was regularly improved by the insurance companies as we updated and upgraded all the time. They did us a little kindness by the way in which they kept ripping off things, but they never took everything. We never came home to an empty house. It was always just the latest... TV set or, 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 or whatever it might be that the insurance company had just bought from us the last time that our friends had visited us. And so, but they didn't take, but when Edom goes down, it's going down. Nothing will be left to Edom. And so verse 5, you see, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how often have you, you have been destroyed? Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers come to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. Disaster, ransacking, pillaged, everything will go. And what friends you think you have 
For what will your friends be like in verse 7? All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They've prevailed against you. Those who eat the bread have set a trap. Your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. It's so just that the nation which should have stuck up for its brother is to be betrayed by its allies and friends. How fickle are fair-weather friends. The friends of the prodigal son, if you remember. (laughs) When his money had gone, they went as well. The friends of the successful, the friends of the wealthy. True friendship is often found in hardship, isn't it? It's where loyalties and faithfulness and love are found. And one of the great problems of coming to power and authority and prestige and importance is that the only friends you can now trust are the ones you had before you came to power and authority and place and prestige. The ones who stuck with you in the hard times are the only ones you can trust. But if you're a prime minister, if you're a premier, which member of the cabinet would you trust? (laughs) You couldn't, could you? Except the ones who knew you when you were nothing. So the judgment on Edom is one of retribution. They were being given their just deserts, verse 15, over the page, verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations, and as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. This is the continued biblical perspective on justice that our society, in its politically correct and social engineering way, has lost sight of. We get paid what we deserve in justice. We are not engineered into what the government wants us to become. That's not justice. We must return to the Department of Prisons and no longer call it the Department of Corrective Services, which comes straight out of 1984 and the Gulag Archipelago of Russia. But it's been here in New South Wales for some years. So Obadiah sees the judgment falling on Edom. But what that, that judgment is part of a larger judgment. It's part of the day of the Lord. So in verse 8, verse 8, Will not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy, destroy will I not on that day to destroy the world? It's not just they're getting a judgment from the other nations. God is judging them. It's his day. So come back to verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For the day of the Lord is near when all nations, not just Edom, will give account. For in the attack on Jerusalem, the world rose up against, more than Jerusalem, more than Judah, but against God and his anointed. We, the world, rose up against God, against God's city, against God's people, against God's Messiah, the King. It is the theme of Psalm 2 and much of the Old Testament that the nations rage against God and against his appointed King. And so we shall all drink the cup of the Lord's wrath. Verse 16, For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. 
Have you ever met an Edomite? You ever come across a Moabite? It is as if they had never been. They don't exist anymore. And on that day, God will fulfill his promise to Jacob and Esau. For Jacob will be restored and Esau will be destroyed. Jacob and the city of God built on Mount Zion will be rescued. Verse 17. But Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possession. And out of this new restored Zion will come the judgment fires on Esau. Verse 18. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a fame and the house of Esau stubble they shall be burnt them and consume them and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken there will be no survivors there will be no Edomites Edom will be burnt to a stubble and the people of the desert will occupy Edom verses 19 and 20 has details we're not so sure of but the people of God are going to regain the promised land and the Philistines in the west and Zarephath in the north and Gilead in the east and Negev in the south, that the limits of the promised land are set out for us here and the change and, the, and it's true, friends. These nations don't exist and one of the oddities of life is that the Jews do. That's one of the oddities of life, isn't it? That this little nation that was destroyed repeatedly, wiped off the face of the earth by the Babylonians, actually is still here in the 21st century. Whereas these nations that succeeded, the great city of Babylon, it's not really there now. It's raised to the ground and the Edomites and the Moabites, and they've gone. The day of the Lord will come and will bring the kingdom of God for deliverance for the people and the judgment of their enemies establishes God's rule on earth. So verse 21, it finishes positively. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. When Jesus came, he declared the kingdom now. The time was fulfilled. The long-delayed, waiting kingdom had come. Reading books like Obadiah, Jesus' contemporaries were looking for retribution on the nations. They had not learnt to see, as Obadiah saw, a spiritual kingdom. For the Jews of Jesus' days were following not Jacob, but Esau. They wanted the destruction of these nations and so they rejected the true Israel Jesus the Messiah and in rejecting the true Israel they rejected God they were like their uncle Esau the man who for a single meal for the sight of that single meal sold his inheritance rights as the older son they wanted to continue to live in Palestine under Roman control rather than have the Lord's Messiah. Esau, he lived and died by his appetites and his immediate vision. He didn't value the promises of God for the future. He could only think of the now, the present, the immediate. He didn't value a meal that he could not taste with his mouth. He is the great example of the godless man who despises the inheritance that God promises. And we too, as a nation, as a people, and as individuals can do the same thing, can't we? For the car, the job, the overseas trip, the marriage, the promotion, the mortgage, the security, they're all our bowls of lentil soup, aren't they? The things that people will give up their inheritance for, the advancement, 
Our society has denied its inheritance for wealth, for individual freedom, even though we now have loneliness and unhappiness and unhealthy lifestyle and obesity, our society keeps on giving up the great heritage of its Christian foundations. But it's always for the mighty dollar. That's what they're giving it up for. For the good life now, we will set aside the principles upon which our whole society was built. And while, why will we side with God's enemies in attacking God's people? The enemies are powerful, rich, wealthy winners, offering fame and quick money and fast lifestyle and parties and promotion. They offer you the kingdom of God in this world now, but it's not the kingdom of God, of course. Look at the contrast of Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorned the shame, as God calls us in Hebrews 12 to be the same, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And in that same chapter, Hebrews 12, the contrast is made with Esau. For Jesus is the man of faith, who being assured of the things he hoped for, being convinced of the things not seen, sided with defeated Jerusalem. It looks stupid at the time of the Babylonian captivity. It often looks stupid to side with God and his people in their defeat. It never looked more stupid than on the day of the crucifixion when Jesus, the Messiah, hung on the cross. But the God of Jerusalem is the God of the resurrection. He has promised and his inheritance will not be lost and it must never be devalued by those to whom it has been given. Hold on, my friends. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for every gift you give to us, but above all, for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death and resurrection for us. We thank you that he was the man of faith who knew your promises and endured the loss of all things, who just despised the shame of the cross, because the joy of the establishment of your kingdom, your righteousness, your justice, your salvation for all people. We thank you for him, Father, and pray that you would ever so pour your spirit into our hearts that we would ever hold firm to the great promises of the inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.